Hey guys, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that my long-awaited second book is finally available for pre-order. It's called Rebuilding Milo, The Lifter's Guide to Fixing Common Injuries and Building a Strong Foundation for Enhancing Performance. I wrote it to be the ultimate guide and solution for your struggles with injury and pain we develop in the weight room. I know many of you guys listening to this podcast are frustrated and irritated with injuries when lifting. I understand your pain. I've been there. I understand how discouraging it is to tweak your back three weeks out from a huge weightlifting competition. Like you, I've had knee pain, limit my ability to squat heavy for weeks on end. I've had chronic shoulder issues that keep me from you know, doing a push press overhead. I know exactly what you're going through. I believe that every single athlete ought to have the right to take the first steps at addressing their aches and pain. You should not have to wait two weeks in line to see a medical doctor who does not understand lifting and is only going to prescribe pain medications and then tell you just to take two weeks off lifting or even worse, stop lifting altogether. The information contained in my next book is the culmination of my life's work as a sports physical therapist. It contains all of the information I've amassed over the past decades, helping some of the best athletes in the world get out of pain and return to the sports that they love to do and lifting stronger than ever. And I want to give that to you. This book will walk you through simple tests and screen to uncover the why behind your pain. It will then lay out an individualized rehab program to decrease your pain and eventually return you to your sports. This book is the solution to your problems with pain and injury when lifting. So when you're done listening to this podcast, I want you to go and pre-order my new book, Rebuilding Milo, on Amazon or whatever store you buy from. It will officially release January 2021, and it would mean the world to me if you would pick up this book. Thanks, guys. Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshay. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Hey, what's up, podcast listeners? Thank you so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 97 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Today's podcast is sponsored by Barefoot Athletics. Here's the deal. If you want to lift big weights with great technique, you need the right shoe. And for those of you out there that like to lift in a flat sole shoe like a Chuck Taylor, you need to check out the Ursus shoe by Barefoot Athletics. They have a wide toe box that allows you to naturally splay your toes out and use your foot like it was designed. No more cramming your foot into a narrow toe box and smashing your foot into an unnatural position. And yes, most Chuck Taylor's most famous powerlifting shoe are extremely narrow. I've been lifting in the Barefoot Ursus for a while now, and I absolutely love them. They're extremely comfortable, and they won't break your bank like other lifting shoes on the market today. Now, if you go on barefootathletics.com, and that's B-E-A-R, like the animal, and use the code SQUATU, you can get 10% off your order, and that's for anything on their website. So, again, check that out. On today's episode, I got the awesome opportunity to sit down with Dr. Andrew Locke. And we got to talk about all things core stability, back pain rehab, and how to differentiate good research from flat out bad and misleading research. So without further ado, let's get to today's episode. Andrew, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come on to the Squat University podcast. For those out there that don't know who you are, the great work that you do, can you give us all just a brief background and glimpse into what you do? Uh, whoever doesn't know me must have been hiding under a rock for the last decade, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, I've been a physiotherapist or physical therapist for about 25 years now. And I've probably been lifting a bit longer than that, probably even 30 years. I actually initially wanted to be a professional baseball player. I played baseball for Australia as a junior. And I started, uh, when I finished high school, I was getting ready to come over and play um, some semi-pro to get ready and then I saw a magazine with Arnold Schwarzenegger decided to make a few Conan movies I still haven't made one yet <laughs> got stuck into the world of weights um, actually it was then when I graduated from university I got scouted to become a pro wrestler Wow! and um, instead of being with, just with a blonde mohawk I had long blonde hair at that time I was weighing about uh, just about 300 pounds and actually came over to, I had a job out just out of Chicago and got injured, back injury at that point, which um, sparked my interest in a little bit more back problems. 
And yep, so here I am still working as a physical therapist, but just incredibly passionate about becoming the best that I can be, I think is what we always say. So for myself, yeah, I've been riding for a long time, worked with some incredible athletes and every day, like yourself, trying to do the best we can do and tear apart bad research and tear apart the things that we now with experience know are holding back our profession. Definitely. And that's, that's definitely something that I want to jump into today. We are going to get into some bad research for those out there that saw the Instagram post that I put up today. We will jump into that. By the time this uh, podcast obviously goes live, it'll be about a week old or so. So scroll back through Instagram if you guys want to see that. Uh, one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on, when I um, was scrolling through the internet, I was looking at different stories and I see my, my friend JP Price who, uh, you know, a mutual patient of ours being able to share, which is awesome. And I'd worked with JP very early in his back injury. And then, you know, we had collaborated with McGill. And then since I've left um, Kansas City, coming now to St. Louis, and just, you know, keeping tabs with him and, and watching some of the new exercises he had been doing. And I saw him doing an offset walk and an offset squat. Um, and I had never really seen that to a great degree before. I'd, I'd seen McGill maybe mention it once in his low back disorders book, but I hadn't really seen many people train with it. And I had to message him and he was like, yeah, I'm working with Dr. Andrew Locke. And I was like, I need to jump in and look at this guy. And I'm going through all the things that you share on social media and the blogs that you had written. And I'm like, man, this is my, this is my brother from another mother. We are definitely on the same wavelength here. We're both McGill guys. We talk about core stability, education, and how that blends into not only getting out of back pain, but performing to our greatest potential, especially in the strength sports, which we love so dearly. Um, so I definitely wanted to dive into and learn from you and all the different experiences that you've had so that, you know, we can just educate each other and educate the amazing audience that's out there that wants to learn from people like us. And I wanted to dive into first the topic of core stability, because so many people have the idea still today that if I can do a lot of GHD sit-ups or reverse hypers or, you know, a bunch of Russian twists that I'm going to get my core stronger. And then all of a sudden it's going to carry over to a more stable spine so that I can lift better. So we have this confusion between the ideas of strength and stability. So let's dive down there and I'd love to hear from you. What's your take on the idea of stability versus strength and where have we gone wrong? You know, it's really interesting, isn't it? I think one of the most important things that we as professionals do is about the first two years of our university where we learn our basic physiology, we learn some biomechanics, and then it looks like most professionals forget those rules because that's where it really comes from. Um, and that was one of the beautiful things I think um, that came to me. The greatest discoveries I ever make are the ones that probably to some extent are the mistakes we make because they, something will happen that you didn't expect. And uh, that's, the, that's what actually happened to me. That's why we came to this um, concept on proprioception. So what happened was when I was doing a master's degree, I had to go through a couple of hospitals on rotation. And after about a week of being in a new hospital, the head of the department pulled me in and said, stop fixing people. You're not learning anything. These patients are here to you, for you to learn from. You're not here to just do what you do to make them better. Do what you don't know works. And that was a real eye-opener. It meant I had to throw away everything I knew that I'd worked with that worked, and I had to try everything that I didn't believe in. That's one of the great things that opens up your eyes, and I saw some amazing things from things that I didn't expect would work. And that comes down to how I discovered McGill, because I was studying like yourself, and suddenly you run across, there's a paper back in the 90s where I run across, across this guy, McGill. I love it. Suddenly, I'm grabbing everything that he's written. I'm having a great time. And that's really what got to me. Here I am an Australian, and I've grown up with the idea that pulling your belly button in is some form of stability. Mm -hmm. And there's a really famous paper, and this is what started the whole of the Pilates you know, tsunami that we got swept up with, was by um, Joel and Richardson out of the University of Queensland. Now, this is an interesting study because it happens to have been published in the first edition of a new magazine, Manual Therapy. And I don't know, I just look at it and I think it wasn't that well peer-reviewed because in it, 
and this is where the challenge comes for us with stability and ability, is that I happened to be lying on a beach probably in Rio at that time, and I started reading some research, and then I decided, probably like yourself, I don't just read the research, I read the references that they reference. Yes. Well, sure enough, the definition of the transverse abdominus multifidus theory comes down to the idea that they are both local muscles. And that's what they state in the research, that this is by contracting your transverse abdominus, your multifidus will contract as well, and this is stability. Well, it's not. For a start, they quote a, pub, a paper by a guy called Bergmark, who defines the difference between a local muscle and a global muscle. Uh, Bergmark made very clear that transverse abdominus is a global muscle, and the research paper said it's a local muscle, and they quoted him. They've actually misquoted this fellow. Um, same thing with a, a study by a guy called Creswell. He did the same. And they both said that transverse abdominus, it contracts regardless of the direction that you move and whatever you do. But multifidus, that only contracted in regard to the direction you went. They were not a force couple. Mm. That was the basis behind the stability issue. So everyone was taking this study, pulling their belly buttons in, lying on Pilates reformers like dead bugs and thinking they were getting stable. Mm -hmm. what happened to your first and second year physiology you're on your feet you're not on your back we're having to retrain human beings in patterns of movement ah here it comes people seem to forget and this is what we do in our work like with you at squat university how do you fix the pattern the person's got a problem with mm -hmm. that's what we're after so yes then i ran to mcgill and realized that when you turn all your core muscles on you're a lot stiffer you're a lot more stable great and I also think the problem with the fitball came in. People confuse the word stability with the word balance. So you're sitting on an unstable surface, you know, doing dumbbell presses or something like that, and they're talking about doing stability training. No, you're not. You're doing balance training. And that's balance. That's not stability. Very true. So I think one of the biggest problems we have is the definition of stability is misunderstood by a lot of professionals. And of course, that's where I got into that thing about transverse abdominus being total bullshit. <laughs> it, does, it is not a local muscle and it attaches to the thoracodorsal fascia. You turn it on, it affects every level of your spine. It isn't a force, a force couple with multifidus. Hence, stick a pin in that balloon. That one's dead. But they still teach it in universities. Very true. And why do they do that? That's another question we'll go, to, go into one day. I remember so, going through school this past, uh, I usually would go and teach at the University of Missouri where I graduated with my doctorate. I would go back and I would teach every single spring, just a day class, usually on sports physical therapy and sort of the, the progression from early rehab back to sports training. And the last couple of years after I started really getting into the McGill research and understanding that it wasn't just the TA and we don't just need to be doing, you know, drawing in and how a full brace to activate all the core muscles that surround the spine is much more efficient at creating stability and limiting movement of the spine. And I was teaching this and I can just see my old teacher in the corner and she's just like looking around like nervously, like, did, did he just say that the stuff that I just told them last week is completely wrong? And I'm like, yeah, like we need to be able to a critically appraise research and learn from our mistakes in the past and, and move on and, and, you know, discover new things. And obviously the world of physical therapy and physiotherapy has evolved immensely in the last 30 years. So we cannot just keep, you know, teaching the exact same old stuff. <laughs> there is a challenge, isn't it? University is not there to teach you really the things you all need to know. It teaches you how to begin to think and how to discern the difference between correct and incorrect research but there's a problem. So I always say to the students who I work with, don't do what I say in exams. Do what your university lecturers want you to do to pass. <laughs> then when you come out, do all the things that I'm telling you. Yeah, you, you have to be. still pass your boards. <laughs> that's it. Yes, tell them that there is a VMO. They want to hear that there's some bullshit <laughs> muscle called VMO that doesn't exist. But, but you better but you, tell you, them there is. You can activate it, right, with short arc quads. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's as long as um, I think it's really good as long as the, the students are coming out knowing that all they had to do was pass that exam. They don't have to believe what they put in. Yes. But let's believe you can start to read about good and bad research. 
So true. Because Being able to critically appraise is, is key. Oh, that evidence-based research, rubbish that we hear. You know what? The basic thing is, how about science-based? I always say, if the research conf- conflicts with the basic sciences, then I bet you it's the, si- the um, research is wrong, not the science. <laughs> so true. And so, yes, that's, um, that was an interesting one I saw recently. Was, um, I hear these physical therapists on Instagram and places saying, scapular stability doesn't work to improve shoulder pain because there's a study out of Brazil that proves it. Um, read the study. What was the intervention? Three times a week with TheraBand. All oh, right. So what does that tell you? Exactly. It tells you that three times a week with TheraBand, scapular stability work doesn't work. Yeah, that's right. Try it twice a day properly. Yeah. Well, and even then it has to, for what subgroup of people, you know, <laughs> shoulder pain is the most vague term, just like nonspecific low back pain. You know, you have to screen and you have to evaluate and understand why is the shoulder pain there? Just like uh, the word impingement, shoulder impingement, it's almost like a black hole of diagnoses because it could mean encapsulate so many different things. You could have someone who develops, uh, you know, uh, internal impingement because of a lat inflexibility issue or because of, you know, uh, overly active pec and under facilitated posterior shoulder, you know? So there's so many different reasons. You can't just lump everyone together, do one intervention, and then believe that because your intervention didn't fix statistically for everyone, that there's no role for that ever. I mean, we talk about nonspecific low back pain. I know you've, you know, had many rants on that before. (laughs) Definitely. So that is the most important thing that our work really, where we look at what we're doing to educate people, it really is trying to help people understand that there are some very important biomechanics that you can use, that you can describe issues, pain, in very specific terms. Because once again, if you have a non-specific lower back pain, then clinically you cannot put an intervention into it that is specific. Very true. Because what's that mean? It means that You've, you don't know what you're doing, so nothing works. As soon as you describe a specific, you have a clinical reason to apply a specific intervention. Ah, that's how we came by the proprioceptive issues. You look for a problem and then you find something specific to address it with called clinical reasoning. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a thing we do teach. And that's what we do in our Instagram work. We teach people to think. Exactly. I, I think that's the biggest thing is just, it's not just telling people, you know, do you have back pain? Do this. Because we see that all the time. Do you have knee pain? Do this. That's on social media all over. And it's a very easy catch because the uneducated person goes, I do have back pain. I'll try that. But in reality, it should be, do you have back pain? Try this test. What does that test show you? Yes or no. Now you have a way to understand whether or not that intervention is right for you. And specifically for back pain, you know, if you give the person the wrong intervention, it could be disastrous. It could have no effect at all, or it could be very, very helpful. So you have to have that screening to provide context so that your intervention can be specific and actually be effective or else we're just throwing, you know, stuff at the wall and seeing what, what sticks. That's why I loved McGill's work and I love his courses and I love the things he's taught us all. Yes. It's, how to discern what the problem is. What direction do we have a problem in? And that's why, you know, I actually do why I say solving back problems is actually easy mm-hmm. because you can pull it back into the concepts I'd like to teach is passive, active, and movement. I tell my patients, you only need to know three letters, passive, P-A-M. Once you know P-A-M, then I can show you how you hurt what you hurt which is usually you've heard a passive structure because an active muscle isn't doing its job and you have a poor movement pattern. Good. Now let's go out in the gym. Let's address that poor movement pattern. Let's fix up the active muscle group that's not correctly firing in the pattern and your passive structure will not get hurt. Now within about five minutes, the patient is empowered enough to understand that there's a very clear pathway to resolving an issue. Passive, active, and for the professionals, I always say neurological. So it's P-A-N for us because we think of neurology. Yeah. <laughs> for the patient, I just got to say, it's movement. And that's how I fell, up, fell upon the concept of the proprioceptive thing. Like yourself, um, McGill gave us so much on the active system. And then we were sort of not looking very much at the intertransversari in the interspinale muscles, which are in the spine. 
what are they doing there? And like usual, it comes from a mistake. I was shooting some video and we were doing some offset kettlebell work and suddenly somebody felt better while we were shooting the video. Okay, what's happening? What's behind this? And that's when I started to realize that what was happening was because of like the work I did with JP, mm -hmm. when we put a, a, a band on a bar, but we make it offset and unilateral, we have an accelerating kettlebell. We have a decelerating weight. It's moving forward, backwards, sideways. What's having to deal with that? Well, that's where our proprioceptive system comes in. That's our interspinale muscles. This is a, all these little muscles there which are mentioned in the McGill work, but because they don't have a great cross-sectional area, it's not something we actually have. The beauty of it is by actually using them for what they are. They're proprioceptive. They lead us into understanding at a reflex level what's going to turn on that deeper core muscle that we can't have time to think about consciously. And suddenly realizing that here was a key to changing some dramatically challenging back pain was suddenly I was addressing their proprioception. And you read the research, a multifidus itself has huge amounts of um, muscle spindles in it. All right, so that starts to key back into old research. Lower back pain demonstrates deficits in multifidus muscle. Great, now we're filling some gaps in. And so it's been the most awesome thing is to play with the basic concept underneath. Even some of the most nasty discs have come in. I've had extrusions come in where they're going to have to wait a couple of months for surgery. So we just start and say, you've got nothing to lose. And we'll put on some, we'll just do our directional work as we would with McGill, assess. But I'm going to put some proprioceptive work underneath. And sure enough, almost all of them within a couple of minutes go, I actually feel better now. Great. So it's like when you've got an ankle inversion injury. What do we do? Uh, we do proprioceptive training. This is what we've been missing in spines. We haven't been going for proprioceptive training as well. And I think it's really important for combat athletes. I think it's important for athletes with explosive sports. Not as much for perhaps your normal everyday person who we can do a whole lot of good by just fixing their hip hinge and we can make them turn everything on. But this is a really big part, I think, of the recurrence of some of the more explosive athletes we deal with. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the things I've worked with JP was suddenly going, I see what's happening. He's having a problem bracing in this position. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to give him something that feeds him back a little bit harder. And um, that's the part of the stability concept we go to is this muscle spindle concept is improving the stability. And now I've got a little bit um, off into the glute world now mm -hmm. in going, hmm. There's also a lot we've got to look at for stability that comes from the glutes. And I had a great time with Professor McGill a couple of years ago where I was lucky enough to ask me to come up to his place when we were presenting at the Swiss conference in 2018. And I found a relationship between performing a particular form of clam that I put together and suddenly changing the extension nature of a person's injury. So I was, I was just doing one intervention, throw in the clam, and suddenly a person's lumbar extension opened up dramatically. What happens here? How does that happen? Well, I think it's a stability concept. And a lot of the people I look at now, this is where I've moved more into integrating glutes to core. I think I'm going to call glutes a core muscle now too. Right? I 100% agree. Yep. And so, so, what you're, really so you're referring to the, for those out there that haven't seen this, I, I saw a video. It was basically someone laying on their stomach, correct, with their foot. And uh, basically, if they're laying on their stomach, their right foot is crossed over on top of their left knee. And yep. they're doing a clamshell, basically laying on their stomach, opening their knee up and down, correct? Correct. See, the problem, once again, goes back to what is a clam? The clam was supposed to be a glute exercise. But if you do it as per the books, it's a hip flexor exercise. Rectus femoris, TFL, that all does it because you're lying on your side. And as soon as you're abducting and externally rotating, you're going into hip flexion. Yes. And you're using those against gravity. So I turned a person over, said, now your ass is facing the ceiling. Now your ass will work. And get your knee out of hip flexion. Get your femur further down into neutral mm -hmm. because that's where glutes work best. In an evolutionary sense, we're hunter-gatherers. Our glutes have evolved for us to walk, ambulation. That's where we've got to try and get our clam to. Great. So I developed a clam that actually works your glutes. Well, 25 of those on each side, you stand up and do a lumbar extension after I've demonstrated to you what your range is, and suddenly it can open up to almost double. 
Now, I haven't touched your lower back. All I did was turn your glutes on. All right, so now I know that glutes are a stabilizing system. As we know, stability produces ability. I've stabilized you. You've got more ability. That's the wonderful thing McGill gave us. Stability produces ability. Now, how do I make you yeah. more stable? Now you'll move better. Yeah. So huge things on glute integration. Now, that's one of the things I've actually found is a lot of the people and athletes especially I deal with, they have problem getting past zero degrees with hip extension without their lumbar spine trying to extend. Mm, yeah. So I really observed that in a lot of people is, okay, as soon as you try and lift your leg, you're actually extending your lumbar spine. I've got to stop you doing that because that's not normal. You're actually, once again, wearing into your lumbar back, lumbar spine for something that should be a hip problem. Mm -hmm. So there's a specific protocol to getting to hip extension and then I'll put your lumbar stabilizing on top of that. And that's been beautiful. There's something going, wow, you know, I can look back at some of the, I think it's Gray Cook and his FMS work and things like that that I always loved. And I can see that those theories lead to where we're going now. We always stand on the shoulders of the giants, don't we? Now, that's what so true. That's so true. So true. So you would, you would find that particular uh, manner of doing a clamshell to be extremely helpful for someone who would be extension intolerant potentially, or, correct? More so than yes. any other type. Yeah, and that's it. Where that extension is actually coming out of their lumbar spine when it shouldn't have been doing that work. That's you know, that concept behind the thing. But we're making some form of compensation for a problem somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much what we do all day, isn't it? Oh, You're seeing a so bad true. movement pattern. Why is it there? Because it's making up for an immobility or a stiffness somewhere else or an instability somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Address that foot. Address that knee. Address that thing. Ah, suddenly you're better. So I think you know, in physical therapy, I think, and this is where the medical model of lower back or shoulder or knee goes wrong, is we're always taught that things were segments when we were, when we were taught. Mm -hmm. You're treating a hip, you're treating a knee, you're treating a shoulder, uh, but you're not putting them together. And fundamentally, this is what we do, is everything affects something else. So yeah, you're treating a lower back, hmm, better test out your hip too, better test out your knee. Always test the thing that you don't, that's one of the things I always teach students. Don't, don't test what you do know, test what you don't know, like I was taught. Mm -hmm. Do you think your knee's involved in this? Let's find out. Rule it out. Very quick and easy. So you always test the things you don't know. It's that interconnection, I think, that goes for every single part of the body. I mean, and that's the, the great idea, I think. Uh, one of the most sort of mind-blowing concepts that I first learned you know, very early in grad school when I was reading the book Movement from Gray Cook. And I know a lot of people argue over the idea of whether or not the FMS is that valid, but it's, I think it's, they're getting too nuanced into the idea of he's trying to talk globally, you know, these huge theories and ideas and how we need to take a step back and stop looking so, uh, you know, much at the body through a microscope and look at the body and understand the connectivity between the hip in the knee, in the ankle, and how we could have someone who has horrible ankle mobility be a large contributor to why they developed back pain in the first place. But if we only look at the back, we miss the full connection. And that person, sure, we may be able to get them out of pain. In fact, they could just go about their life and in a few weeks, their pain could burn out. But does that mean that they fixed why the pain is there? Or did they fix the, uh, you know, the need for that not to recircle in a couple months or a couple of years, because often while that pain may flare out, you know, the cause is still there. And that's why we have such a high occurrence reoccurrence of back pain in the world today. Well, that comes into a good patient I had recently. He was a special operations um, federal police fellow. Mm -hmm. I'd seen him a couple of years ago and he rings me and he does a call with me from a distance because he's doing a course somewhere. He's hurt his back again. And he says, he opens up, he says, oh, it's been a few years since I've seen you. I said, yeah, that's good. He said, I, I did all your exercises for the first year, then I stopped. And I said, stop right there. At what point did I tell you you were supposed to stop? Yes. And it, I said to him, as I tell my patients, you're doing these exercises for the rest of your life. And I expect you to carry them on into the next life as well. You are <laughs> never to stop them. <laughs> all right. I go, do we have an understanding here? I'm not telling you to ever stop. You must do these every day. You'll move better than anyone else in the old folks' home. Yes. Oh, that, and, and that's, a, that's a big eye-opener there too. I know going through my clinical rotations and seeing people in the, the skilled nursing facility, and the large majority of people that are in the skilled nursing facility are there not because of dementia, Alzheimer's, 
or because of a debilitating injury. They're there because they don't have the strength to get out of a chair and walk down to the lunchroom or ascend and descend some stairs. They've lost that strength and it's so vital. It's very interesting is, you know, what I can hear there is very it's similar to what happened to me. The first day I, I um, left university, I had a job with um, the best sports medicine place in the country. Mm-hmm. Money because I knew I was a good pair of hands. And the boss, she pulled me into the, her office at the start of it and said, your job being here is to become the best in the world at something. And she goes, and I'm the best in the world at shoulders, so you have to choose another joint. <laughs> so that's how I got onto backs. Yeah. And it's interesting. How did you get to focus that squats? Because you've just, when we just see that, that's the bridge between what we just talked about where the old people yeah. don't know how to move. Yeah. And you found the squat was something that was close to your heart. How did that happen that squat manifested for you? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, the thing that happened was as a young therapist, I was seeing a number of athletes. I was able to see at the place I worked at in Kansas City it was a great sports uh, physical therapy location. I was able to see you know, young kids, middle school age, high school athletes. I was able to see college, some professional level, and then also like you know, your aging grandpa who wants to continue running marathons. So I was able to see these athletes on all ends of the spectrum both amateur and professional and, you know, very, very young in their life, but then also very, very good at what they do in their aging athlete. And during our evaluation, I would get them up and I would ask them to do different movements. You know, I was very much into the FMS and the understanding of breaking down movement patterns and assessing and seeing what I uh, could find and what was the, what was the missing link. And I would have athletes get up and just take their shoes off. And I'd say, show me a just double leg squat. And then show me a single leg squat. And time and time again, it was almost like this deja vu-like scenario where I would see these best, these amazing athletes at all different spectrums of uh, athletics, baseball, football, basketball, weightlifting, powerlifting, CrossFit, seeing all these amazing athletes that were doing great things on the field of sport or even moving big weight in the weight room, yet were not able to perform a great-looking deep bodyweight squat without shoes on. Needless to say, there was no way they could do it single leg as well. And it sort of dawned on me that we have, as a society, conceptually rearranged our athletic priorities to think that it is more important to squat big weight rather to be able to perform the basic movement of a squat. We've thought that the movement is not important, that if I'm doing a squat with 400 pounds, I know how to squat. So instead of looking at, um, I remember Greg Cook, he had this, uh, the athlete pyramid in his book where he was talking about the ideal athlete, how they were set up with a wide base of movement quality. And then there was strength or different measurements as far as power, things that we can measure. And then there was skill at the very top. So a three-tiered pyramid. And obviously the very bottom being the fundamental movement patterns that we should be able to perform that are then based on an athlete's mobility and stability. And what I was finding time and time again was this huge gaping hole in our athlete's pyramid of a squat pattern that we had missed, that we, you know, had missed mobility, stability, and assumed that we had it because we were lifting such big weight. And I think because of that, we conceptually flipped our athlete's pyramid upside down and put so much stock into strength, power, and skill and forgot about the movement. And I find that that was sort of a big reason why we had developed so many injuries as athletes. And when you rearranged those priorities and got uh, really focused on improving the squat as a whole, worked on your mobility, worked on your stability, your ability to perform a great looking squat and then loaded it, then learned how to improve your strength. You set, you know, the foundation to go even higher. So like Louis Simmons once said, uh, a pyramid can only be as tall as it is wide. Well, let's make our pyramid wider by solidifying that one basic fundamental movement that so many of us have lost the ability to do. You ask your mom, you know, hey, mom, squat down. Show me a deep squat. Can you sit there for five minutes? You know, your best friend, your, your teammate. And so many of them, you can't even do that. Well, how, then how do you expect to have a great base to your fundamental pyramid? So it's whenever we sort of rearrange that idea and put our emphasis in movement first and then pair it with the already high emphasis we have in performance, that's where the magic happens. So I was like, it all starts with a squat. You want to be able to deadlift well. You want to be able to clean, 
snatch. You want to be able to run down the football field, jump, run, spin. You have to be able to first perform the basics of a squat and have it look good, single and double leg. And then from there, it expands and becomes a building block for everything else that we want to do. Isn't that great? And that's one of the great sayings that um, one of my great coaches works, I work with says, you have to earn the right. Yes. And that is you have to earn the right to actually put weight on the bar. 100% you need agree. to be able to have that pattern. So within the, the way we approach it is even in the warm-ups for our bigger squat guys, you have to earn the right to put the next weight on there. Mm-hmm. If your warm-up's not going right, you don't move to the next weight. Yeah. So and that 100% life. comes, I think, with, with a belt. You know, mm. I put a post up the other day and I said, if you can't squat 80% of your max without a belt and it looks pristine, you haven't earned the right to go up. <laughs> there because it is. I think, gosh, I see way too many athletes and they put that belt on with, you know, 100 kilos on the bar. And they're, <laughs> they're you know, 200, 225 kilo squatters. Why are you putting a belt on with 50% of your max? I've seen people wear the belt down the beach because it looks good. <laughs> That's true. Hey, they want to look the part then. <laughs> they got it. Yeah, the squat, the squat pattern, there it is. We are just basically truly undercovering our evolutionary heritage. How do we move? Well, you need to be able to walk properly. You need to be able to start there. And yeah. you need to be able to squat properly. And you need to be able to climb. And you need to be able to lift a weight off the ground basic movement patterns that our bodies are supposed to have. And that's where I come back to where I find the glute work for lower lumbar spine stability comes in because yeah. the control of the hip, that's, a, that's another thing I find. People say, oh, glute max, that's just hip extension. Glute med, there's hip abduction. No, they all do this. Yeah. They all have roles in integrated function. They aren't just separate muscles doing separate things. Mm-hmm. And as you move through that squat pattern, their angles are going to change. Their abilities change. Other muscles vectors take over. So you've really got to move through a full range effectively mm-hmm. to then move on to the next thing. And I think as professionals, that's what we look up with our eyes. We see, okay, so you can get extension, but how are you getting there? Yeah, yeah you're using your lumbar spine because you've got a stiff hip. And um, that's another thing I always teach is don't weaken your strengths, strengthen your weaknesses. So if your hip flexor is tight, you know what? My tender approach is going, I say, thanks to your hip flexor, appreciate that it's working its ass off. Mm-hmm. Don't weaken it. Uh, that's one of my great things. I, I'm against stretching basically as, an, as a rule because I go, strengthen what's weak and that will loosen up. That mm-hmm. will work with you. So I know, you know I started as a manual therapist, so this is my way is moving away from that. And I've had some very good athletes who are very flexible who say, I can't get into the splits properly. Um, my hip flexor feels tight. All right, let's do some glute activations. Ah, oh, I can get a full split now. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you just did it without stretching. You did it through becoming more stable. Ah, oh, we come back to stability again. So by switching more things on, hey, I didn't loosen your tightness. And that's a lot of the, the, the therapist's approach has often been, Oh, I found something that's tight. I can do something with this. I'll stretch it. Mm-hmm. My, my, always say to the professionals I treat, you found something that's tight. Stop. Ask why. Yes. Now that's answer true. the why and you're going to do that patient a service because now you're going to give them a treatment outcome and a treatment plan to move with. You just go stretch that thing. You're making someone weaker. Mm. So don't just stretch what's tight. Ask why. Now as a professional, go find why. Once you've got your why, you're giving your clients something to go away and do. And guess what? They won't have tight hip flexors anymore. <laughs> well, I think the big thing too is, is I know you mentioned this earlier, it empowers the patient. It empowers mm-hmm. the athlete to know what's going on. I know one of the biggest, um, I guess you would say, distaste for people that, uh, that hate McGill's work is they say that he promotes fear of lumbar flexion which couldn't be further from the truth because he always says, I'm not telling you to fear it. I'm telling you if you are flexion intolerant, why it's not a good idea to be rounding into this movement. This is empowering you to then understand and take control of your body and know that there is a reason for your pain. That if you stand erect, if you move into more of an extension position, you learn to move about your hips. Now all of a sudden you have a way of controlling the symptoms that you have. I always say 
fear doing it wrong. That's probably what I would say to you. Don't make you do it right. <laughs> I often get a patient in and they'll show me a movement in one and I'll, on one side. I might look at how they do something. I'll get them to do it on the other side. I go, good. You're equally shit on both sides. We can work with that. <laughs> Definitely. I wanted to yeah. jump into the, uh, the proprioception work again with the, uh, the yes. offset squats. So, or offset walks as well. So I know, um, JP, when I first started, saw him doing them, he just had a barbell on his back and he had an offset weight. He had, I believe it was a 25 or a 35 pound kettlebell just hanging from, um, hanging from the bar with a, like a rogue monster band or something like that. Yes, and it was. Yeah. Bracing, standing up, taking 10 steps back and 10 steps forward, doing a couple reps, a couple sets of that in a row before then changing sides. Um, I guess my first question is how early in an intervention do you usually start this offset type of work with someone who is in low back pain and at what weights are you usually starting them at? All right. So I have a, I have a, um, my base actually began with McKenzie's work. I was actually lucky enough to be a McKenzie graduate in spinal work mm. within about the first year of graduation. So I had a very good understanding of disc mechanics. Mm. And then from there I moved on to McGill and then I've just, I basically, as we say, stand on the shoulders of giants. I put it all together and create more work. All right. The concept which I'm looking at there is my rules are in a client who walks in for the first time, it starts with one word is correction. If they have a deformity in the way that they stand, I have to correct the deformity before I move on to anything else. Mm -hmm. All right. That's your person who's got the contralateral list or the ipsilateral list. All right. What do we do next? We have to fix up the sagittal plane. You have to address the sagittal plane before you move to a frontal plane. And then before you move on to the, transverse plane you have to have had gone through that protocol now that's where i'm thinking with a client who comes in all right proprioceptive work i can begin on a client on day one because underlying basically what is the system that drives your core stability it's the ability of it to reflexively move to save you from pain so with the first thing i'll often do is like i might have an extruded disc who comes in I will probably give them a band with a weight, but I'll just get it to hold it by their side and walk up and down. Mm. So they'll be walking up and down with a weight that's moving, accelerating, decelerating, forward, backward, side, all directions. And it's like going shopping with a shopping bag, except I've got some elastic to this, which is a fundamental movement. They've got to all you know, move with um, loading. So I start them often straight away in the first session in and saying, here is also what you must do. You've got to get a band and we've got to do some work on each side. Someone like JP, much higher level functioning athlete. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he decided to put on about twice as much weight as I probably told him to to start with. Yeah. <laughs> um, I often start those people with a dowel or a stick behind the back rather than a, a bar mm -hmm. because a dowel has basically got no weight to it. So it can't help you balance. Yeah. And if I got that and I put a, a band around that with a weight, then you're going to really struggle, but you're going to struggle in such a way that you can't cognitively deal with it. Your reflexes have got to deal with it first. There's the deficits in research or there's a deficit to research you pointed to for a long time. Uh, we see deficits in multifidus in lower back pain. All right. What does multifidus do? Well, it segmentally stabilizes, but it needs a feedback mechanism to do so, which has been shown in studies. We needed to get to the feedback mechanism. We needed to, give it a reason to turn on. So this is one of the things I will start that in day one on most patients who I'm looking, I often look at outcomes as well. So I'm looking at what is the client's goals in, in life? What have I got to get them back to? Mm -hmm. And when have I got to get them back to it? So it will depend as McGill would say, but I pretty much would start everybody on a small amount of proprioceptive work. And then someone like JP who we're looking at a high level of movement, he's going to go a lot further with this. He's going to use this, with significant weights and we're going to change it. We're going to make him do instead of, you know, like the, the two legged standing squat, we've got a symmetrical bilateral. Let's put him into asymmetrical work. Let's put them into lunges. Let's put them into challenges. You know, we, we change to unilateral and asymmetrical. And if you've got a, an athlete who might be playing football, um, we're going to get him to move in that pattern in perhaps um, some figure rates and things like that. So mm. we can apply the proprioception to the task that the client needs. 
And then on top of that, man, I'm going to build you a great hip extension so your lumbar spine's not being overstressed. Now fix up that hip hinge underneath so I've got that sagittal movement. Uh, if you're a boxer, I'm going to have to work with some rotational work. Great. Really, our, our work comes from our interview. You talk to a client, what have you got to be able to do? What are your goals? Now, I'm going to think in three dimensions. I'm going to think sagittal, frontal, transverse plane. Okay, now I've got you a prescription. Mm. That's how I think. I always go three, three dimension of movement. Yeah. And under that, underpinning that, I'm going to get my proprioceptive work giving you what you need there. Now, if I've got a, like I do, I've got a strongman athlete at the moment. He doesn't need transverse plane much at all. So he's got, say, his nationals coming up. What am I going to do? I'm not going to work him in his transverse plane because he needs his sagittal plane so strong, forward, backwards. Mm-hmm. Now, to get him where he's got to go in a short amount of time, I've just got to fix that movement plane up. You know, after the comp's over, I'll address his other dysfunctions. But don't address those other dysfunctions if he doesn't need them yet. That's what I do with athletes who have a demand. Fix what they need now. Okay, yes, you need some other things, but right now you can get away with it if you don't. But if I introduce the other things, I'm going to screw up your end goal. My job is to get you to your end goal. I like that. I, uh, the, the day that I talked to JP about them, I was like, well, I, I got to try these. So, um, cause I'd never done them before. Obviously, you know, with reading a lot of McGill's work, um, he's very big into with frontal plane, you know, doing a lot of loaded carries, you know, we've got our, our suitcase carries down by the side. We've got our upside down kettlebell work, which to a point, if you're doing a heavy enough upside down kettlebell work, it's very, um, you know, off balance. Uh, it does work that, uh, proprioception, I think to a bit, but mm. nothing to the point at which I had felt doing a offloaded kettlebell hanging from a bar. Uh, mm. is completely different. You know, I've done, my, what's that? How did your internal obliques feel the next day? Oh, amazing. <laughs> amazing. It was, it, it, was, it was amazing. Like I've done um, a number of suitcase carries, um, both down low and then the upside down kettlebell carry. And I know working that the upside down kettlebell carry, I do feel the internal obliques a lot working. Um, but I would have to really, really work on it. And I feel like I was more so limited by my upper body strength and stability. Mm. Whereas I could put half the weight on a bamboo bar, hold it right there, you know, have it dangling on the side. And the second you stand up, your entire body is shaking and that bar just (laughs) wants to flip. You do just a couple walks with that and you would feel that, uh, that oblique work much sooner. Um, it's, it's definitely, I've already been incorporating it with a number of my patients and, and testing it out and seeing how they respond to it. And I really, really enjoy it just because it's a way that you can load someone uh, in a very different manner, but still get the uh, objective. I feel like we're much more able to harness that proprioceptive awareness of the spine and full body just because it's not just spine. I mean, you've got to entirely connect upper body, lats, shoulders, legs. Everything has to work together, the power of your breath at a much lower weight than you would with something like a kettlebell carry. So it's, it's such a great option. So, but you can also integrate it much earlier, I think in someone's, uh, in someone's rehab, especially for someone that may be low to intolerant, you know, and they can't, they can't carry a weight heavy enough to really get that proprioceptive awareness because it does flare up their spine. Yes. And there's the beauty of it. And what this opens up to us as professionals is now to test the thing we didn't expect to change. So we find an objective measure, something that person has a real problem doing. And even though we mightn't think this should directly affect it within the clinic, I'm still going to test it then. Yeah. Because I'm always looking for the thing I didn't expect to happen. And as soon as I got that, Oh good. Now I can, now I can see that I've got something to explain. Mm-hmm. And that's every day in the clinic. So I've been doing that for, I said, I've seen I think about 110,000 patients now over, over a career. And still every day, I'm going to try something I've never tried before with a client because it starts to build more skill. And that's the beauty of it. You know, I had a patient the other day who's, it just came to me. Normally what I've got to do as a professional is you get yourself some objective and subjective markers that you're going to be dealing with. All right. One of the things was he said he has trouble standing out of a chair after he sits down too long. You know, there's two different mechanisms there. In the early stage disc who has problems standing up after sitting down too long, the McKenzie approach is that person has clearly got some nuclear fluid that's been moved posteriorly. And you can really see that even in McGill's work. Mm-hmm. 
Now, in the chronic person, I don't think that's happening, who has problems standing up after a long period of time. I think they've got hip flexors that are stabilising massively, hip extensors that aren't working, and now they've got a compensation pattern. It's the same display clinically, but it's got a different rationale behind it. So what do I do? I put a band around their knees when they're sitting talking to me in, this, in the subjective, get them to do some clams while they're doing that, and I tell them to stand up, and they go, oh, that was easy. Okay, good. Now I know you haven't got nuclear movement as your issue. What you've got is you've got compensation patterns. Yes. And so that was suddenly an eye, uh, another light bulb that came on me not that long ago. It was, yeah, same clinical display, two different causes. When I saw that you had uh, JP performing his incline bench press with a band around his knees. Yeah. And how just engaging the hips was able to change his symptoms of back pain with something so simple that we wouldn't think, oh, I'm doing a, a, a bench press. Let me put a hip circle around my knees. But really, when you understand the complexity of the body and how the glute max and the glute medius, their activation contribute to pelvic stability, to lower lumbar stability, how all of a sudden it does make sense. It made perfect sense. Uh, yeah, we keep coming back to what we started the day with. What's stability going to do for us? Pretty much everything. Yeah, exactly. And so the more stable we make somebody, the more able we make somebody. I'd like to get JP up on his toes eventually again. Yeah. But at the moment, I've got to make him more stable, feet in the ground, work that hip circle, lock the lats down. Great. We're making you stable. You can compete. Mm-hmm. But it's not the end game yet. We're going, to get that, we're going to get those glutes on without getting the hip extension, with getting the hip extension, without getting lumbar compensation, and you're going to be pain-free getting into that position as well. Exactly. And I always remember that was one of JP's issues. He was very uh, load intolerant and very mm. extension intolerant. And um, obviously having the, the whole issue with, with the hip, um, you know, labrum tear and repair as well, which may or may not have had to be done. You know, as we look back, the complications and the fun things of working with patients. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I think it all comes down to, you know, like you said, you have to be able to have a good examination that clearly illuminates what that person's problems are and so that we can build a specific program for them. Um, You know, and to bring in, I wanted to talk about for a second, uh, the research article that I explained today uh, on Instagram. And for those out there that are listening, the research article, the title is to flex or not to flex is the relationship between lumbar spine flexion during lifting and low back pain a systemic review with meta-analysis. So for those out there that don't really read much research, like Dr. Locke and I, uh, we would be very much so research nerds in our own words. Um, You know, uh, a systematic review with meta-analysis is a very highly regarded type of research because they take all this available research that's out there and they try to bring it all together and say, what is the consensus? What can we find from all this research? Well, obviously the title leads you to believe that they're saying, is there a relationship between lumbar spline lumbar spine flexion during lifting and low back pain. So you say, okay, during lifting, lumbar spine flexion, great article. Let's skip to what their conclusions are in the abstract. And it says current evidence to avoid lumbar flexion during lifting to reduce low back pain is not evidence-based. Basically, there's nothing out there that says lumbar spine flexion during lifting is a bad thing. And that's why you'll see sometimes people in the comments on different Instagram uh, videos where I'm talking about how it is not a good idea to round the spine movement during uh, movements like a deadlift or a squat. Now, obviously, if you've listened to a lot of the stuff we talk about, um, ideally, when we're talking about lumbar spine resiliency, we ideally think that a neutral spine is the most, is the best. So if we're talking about a deadlift, we want a neutral spine that's going to be the safest. Second best, and I, I know Dr. McGill has talked about this many times, would be a powerlifter or an elite strongman that maybe has a slightly rounded spine, slightly curved, most of it in the thoracic spine, but it is locked in place and then moved about the hips. That's how a strongman is able to do an atlas stone lift and stay relatively safe. It's because they round their spine over the stone, they lock it in place, and then they move about the hips. Whereas what we don't want to see is that there is movement of the spine. So the spine is loaded and it is moved into flexion. As Dr. McGill's work has repeatedly shown in other 
uh, great uh, researchers have shown that when the spine is loaded and then it is moved repeatedly in and out of flexion, it eventually is the mechanism that leads to injury, such as a bulging disc is one of them or an end plate fracture. Now, if you look at this literature review that said that lumbar spine flexion is okay, or it is, there's no evidence to say it's a bad thing under load, you'll see that they only used or different studies in their analysis that were done on humans. So completely throughout any cadaveric study, which is uh, the ability to use a spine model. So you would take 50 identical uh, pig spines or human spines, uh, which are then, if it's a pig spine, it's obviously calibrated to the human uh, you know, spine. Uh, but that allows us to take 50 identical spines in an ethical manner load it like crazy, bend it like crazy and see what happens. It's not ethical to take 50 humans, say, hey, let's round all your spines under load and see what happens. That's, there's no way this study like that would get approved. So they, they completely throw out the information used on cadaveric spines because they only wanted to use human studies. And it says in the limitations, no study incorporated lifts, had lifts over 12 kilos. Therefore, the results of this study and meta-analysis may not apply to heavy lifting. Yet that's buried in almost the last page of the entire research. What's so amusing about that is when you look at the concept behind that is you could probably go to an ethics committee now and say, I want to test out lumbar flexion on a whole lot of people and load it really heavy because ethically I can because the meta-analysis says there's no problem doing that. <laughs> that's very true that's very true oh, and if you're not going to approve it ethically what are you scared of the science the facts that we do know i mean that's one of the great tables in there as demonstrating as mcgill did the increasing load the decreasing tolerance so, yep what blows my mind is the absolute ignoring of nearly two thousand years of we could call research that demonstrates that is a problem yes i think it's it's either, it's either galen or hippocrates and also the, some of their contemporaries back almost 2000 years, noted the relationship between lower back pain and frequency of flexion. I mean, it's there 2000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And ever since there's been writers who have written about it. So it's so well observed just in even many of the oldest things that we can actually find that relate to medicine and biomechanics. Yeah, we know it's there. Ah, oh, shit, McKenzie proved it in the 1960s. <laughs> Why are we still talking about something that we have established? We seem to be wasting so much time research going over things that we've already done 60 years ago. So it's true. time to actually accept basic sciences and use them. And now yeah. let's move on to the next level. So that's the problem I think with um, academic research a lot of the time is it's being supervised by people who don't know their subject. Yeah. And also have a political agenda to push something such as non-specific lower back pain which we That's, know doesn't exist. Exactly. And it's interesting too, because they talked about how they wanted to only use uh, research articles that used humans. They didn't want to use any cadaveric studies. Yet they did not include the McGill study from 1992, lumbar posterior ligament involvement during extremely heavy list, estimated from fluoroscopic measurements in the Journal of Biomechanics, <laughs> in which a athlete, what they were doing for those out there that don't understand, they were uh, doing a study where they had power lifters, trained power lifters, perform extremely heavy deadlifts under a type of x-ray machine that basically would look into the spine and see movements in real time. So if anyone's maybe seen like a swallow study where they have given someone uh, like a piece of liquid and then they look at how the uh, fluid goes down the throat. It's sort of the same thing, and they did that for spines. Now, in this study, they had an athlete who was uh, performing a very heavy lift, and these are all non-belted, and he was, this, as the story goes, and I've heard McGill talk about this, they had the athlete, he was out of the, the actual path uh, during his setup of the x-ray machine, and the researcher, upon seeing that, was like, Gave him just a little cue, like, hey, can you scoot forward a little bit? So distracted him a little bit. And then he went through his pull. And in that pull, he noticed a little bit of pain. And afterwards, you know, he noticed a little bit of pain in that. And what they captured was an actual movement, a segmental movement of one of his vertebrae past the normal variance. They basically were able to show that 
uh, instability, segmental instability is a real time predictor of back pain. <laughs> it was they one degree you. of it was one degree of movement too. Exactly. When estimated when they, when McGill looked at it, there's a whole lot of factors to that which I look up now as to what our warm ups and what our what our entries to getting to that bar would be now would probably be quite a lot different to what was done in the study mm-hmm. because we, there are ways I think to clear up that even if you make a mistake you're not going to get hurt if you've earned the right to get to that point. So true. So yeah. that's a lot of the work that we would do. Say like the McGill Big Three. There's your stabilizing mechanism. It probably wasn't done into that study because that would have made it in, you know, a little bit invalid. We were looking at how people do things. Yeah. But had we increased his stability and he moved one degree, he probably wasn't going to get hurt. Mm-hmm. Very true. Yeah. And which is why I recommend everyone do the McGill Big Three prior to any type of lifting. And it's, it's super fast. It doesn't take a lot of time. And, you know, there are people that do, uh, you know, as McGill recommends, like the 10 second holds for six reps, maybe a descending rep scheme pyramid. I know Blaine Sumner, he likes to do uh, just a few reps of each and he does 20 second holds. But the idea is priming stability in all three planes of motion, front, back, sides. We're making sure that everything is turned on, it's activated before we get under the barbell. It's not okay. enough to just go walk into the gym cold, grab the barbell, do a couple reps, and think we have prepared our body enough to stabilize for heavy lifting. You'll probably get away with that when you're 18. And that's, that's one of the things yeah. is that a younger body is more resilient and far more elastic and it has the kinetic potential. It's able to load up your elastic tissues. You won't do that in an older body. The collagen does change and we get stiffer. So what you got away with when you're 18 isn't going to get you away with it at 40 most likely. And that's a lot of coaches say, but I lifted so much weight when I was younger and this is the technique I used. Okay, dude, but that was a body that was uninjured. That was a body that, had a lot of capacity. Right now, you've worn a lot of the way. We've got to actually change you into correct technique. That if you're done when you're 18, you wouldn't feel the way you are today. That's no, such an important part of it is fixing younger movement patterns and correcting it because eventually you're going to use up that capacity. Very true. And you'll have a great. That's why I loved about Ed Cohen. The first time I ever met Ed, I think it was 2015. Um, I sort of said, you know, I was so awed that I said your technique was so biomechanically beautiful and he goes it was like that from day one when i got under a bar that's how i moved ah, guess why you got such a great career there's a lot of great movement pattern under you and, and people wonder you're like how were you able to have such a great long career and in speaking with ed that was one of the coolest things that i was able to learn from him was that he was able to really emphasize that idea that every single time you touch the barbell no matter if it's the barbell 40 percent 80 percent or 100 percent He's going to move it with perfect technique. <laughs> and in doing so, you teach your body how to move that way so that every single time you walk out for a squat, it's the exact same. You get under, you brace, you breathe correctly. You take your steps out, one, two, the exact same thing every single time. And I think that's <laughs> lost on a lot of people today. You know, they see these athletes lifting amazing weights on social media and they, they never see a their light lifts because most athletes don't want to put their, their light warmups on, on Instagram, you know, but, but you don't see the, the attention to detail that the best athletes really give their lifts. They need their meta analysis on that one. I think. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Yeah, with a, with a stability approach, I actually have changed it slightly now. I use, a, I think I call the base five. Yeah. Yeah. Can uh, you talk, can you explain those? Uh, yeah. Someone told me I saw the, the lock five, correct? Yeah, that's it. Well, basically because I deal in like yourself and a population of a, an athletic performance crew Mm -hmm. and McGill's brilliance is he, he works with a lot of general population people. I also put in, I start off with the clam approach doing the lock clam that I put together Mm -hmm. because the first thing is there, I actually want to get, if you look at the endpoint, I'm trying to get hip extension without lumbar extension compensation. So I start with the clam with abduction, external rotation. But as we know, glutes max will do that as well. So I prime that with 25 reps on each side, two sets, then move to a front plank, then move to a side plank. And what I'm doing there is I'm getting the bracing started now, but I've also got the glutes also primed for action. Mm -hmm. Changing that, I then put in the fourth exercise I will tend to go to will be a shoulder tap, as you've seen a lot of people doing. It's Mm -hmm. tough as hell. Wow, does that turn your core on? Stop those hips moving, slow hands. 
then I've really got a super braced core. Now I'll put you into hip extension, prone hip extension. And if I super brace up your core and I've turned your glutes on to do some abduction external rotation, now I introduce hip extension, I should be able to get some purity in your hip extension. And that's the basically my athletic base five now for movement is to get the glutes included to that core approach. And then we move into our pattern work. I like it. And that's been super successful. And of course, then we can chuck on the proprioceptive things while we're earning the right to get the weight on the bar. So we're coring it. We're putting in the glutes. We're throwing in the proprioception. And now you earn the right to get your movement pattern working. Perfect. And yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. And you know, the, the good evaluation first, understanding someone's movement patterns and, and what needs to be fixed, understanding their, uh, their movement intolerances, whether or not maybe they have an extension intolerance, a flexion intolerance, what then can we do to, to help them change the way they move throughout the day so that we can decrease their sensitivity. We improve their core stability. We get their glutes on, we retrain them, their proprioception. And that's, I mean, in essence, you know, that's how we fix back pain. And that's, and that's really not only how you fix back pain, but you get people back to doing what they do for, for a long time, being able to perform at whatever, you know, whether they're a strongman, like you mentioned, uh, you know, a baseball player, a football player, or a weightlifter, they have to be able to perform for a long time. We're not here just to get you to pain zero. We want you also to perform in that continuum. As we know, nothing in life is non-specific. Yes. <laughs> Man, I don't care if you're texting on your phone. That's a very specific task. And by the way, the digits have huge amounts of muscle spindles, spindles in them. So, you know, <laughs> we're getting their proprioception on our phones. So, yes, nothing is non-specific in life, is it? A squat's very specific. A sprint's very specific. Throwing a punch is very specific. Get rid of this stupid term, non-specific <laughs> lower back pain. Life is not non-specific. Life is very damn specific. I think my favorite quote from uh, Dr. McGill on this topic was he said, there's no such thing as non-specific low back pain, just non-specific clinicians. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's wonderful, isn't it? Yes, it really tells us all. Well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, Andrew, for, for those out there who, who want to learn more about you, the work that you're doing, uh, see these videos of uh, you know, the offset walks. I'm going to try to share some on social media in the next couple of weeks and tag you so people can see you. Where, where can people find out more about the work that you do? Oh, the current, the current way to do it is um, through the Instagram is the best place because that's where I post most of my quick work at the moment. So that's at Andrew underscore lock underscore strength. And I also work with an osteopath that we're basically combining science work together and that's at United Health Education. And um, we're basically putting out a, at this point, we're putting out a glute toolkit for professionals and clients to be able to purchase soon. And then we're doing our complete core toolkit. So we'll have products that are made for a wider market. And then there'll also be um, obviously our professional mentoring to help professionals become specific in life. There we go. So yeah, everyone, great. yeah, everyone listening to this podcast, go and follow Dr. Andrew Luck on Instagram uh, once you're done with this. Uh, if you are listening to this right now on your phone, take a screenshot of it, tag it uh, to both of us, Squire University and Dr. Andrew Locke on Instagram story so we can reach out and say thank you for listening to the podcast. It really means so much to us. Dr. Locke, thank you so much uh, for being able to take time out of your Saturday morning to come on the show. It's been nothing short of a pleasure. Uh, it's the earliest morning and um, very few people will get me out of bed that early, but you will. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, really absolute it. pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Right. We'll, we'll definitely have to do it again sometime. Oh, guaranteed. I look forward to getting over to see you over there soon enough. Yes, soon some, we for planes. sure. We will definitely do it. Yeah, once COVID's out of this, uh, out of this world. <laughs> All right. That's so great. everyone, thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your day to listen to the Squat University podcast. Until next time, guys, happy squatting. That's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.